Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, councilman in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, and I am excited today to go back to a state that means a lot to me, Iowa, and I'm going to talk to my new friend, Jonathan Greider, from Waterloo, Iowa. We're going to be talking about his work on local issues, why local government is so important, climate change, and other things. Um, but before I get into the discussion, if you have a chance, please go back and listen to past podcasts um, where I've talked to people from Florida to Alaska, Maine to Hawaii and all points in between. And I think that you will find that all levels of government are important. We can't neglect anything and we especially can't, can't neglect the power of local government and local involvement as Jonathan's going to talk about today. So uh, hopefully by the end of this, you will be inspired or motivated to get involved wherever you are, from school board to state rep to Congress to um, mayors to whatever you can. Um, but Jonathan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Tell me about Waterloo. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. So um, Waterloo, for those who don't know, is the ninth largest city in Iowa. Um, we have about 67,000 people based on the last census. Um, it's a really diverse community. Um, we have the largest percentage of African-American um, folks it, living in Iowa in our city. We also have a large immigrant population. Um, during the breakup of Yugoslavia, a lot of Bosnian and Serbian refugees came to live in Waterloo. Um, we've now also welcomed lots of people from Congo um, and different places in Africa, um, as well as our neighbors from Central and South America. So Waterloo is a really diverse city in a state that often isn't seen as that diverse. So um, there are a lot of great things happening here. Uh, we just opened a theme park, um, actually in my section of town. So uh, there's a lot of good things going on in, in our little neck of the woods. And little neck of the woods uh, reminds me, like, you have 99 counties in Iowa, which is about 90 too many, let's be honest. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I know, like, I follow Iowa politics is where I got my start in political work. But um, there, there's different parts of Iowa. It's not necessarily all the same as people might be confused by. So right. Waterloo, where in Iowa is that of the 99 counties? So we are in sort of the northeast section. Um, we're north of Cedar Rapids, northeast of Des Moines, um, and De basically directly west of Dubuque. So we're kind of up in that top corner, so to speak. And Cedar Rapids is most famous for being the location of the 1997 pay-per-view sold out um, between WCW and then the NWO, as I'm sure you remember very well. Yes, obviously. Uh, but Iowa, like, what to me, what was really cool going there is that it is, it, it's often the epicenter of national politics mm -hmm. because of the caucuses, and we don't need to discuss that necessarily, but um, I, when I was there, people were very politically tuned in. This was 20 years ago. Um, so when I talked to people from other parts of the country and asked them what got them involved, something else happened, but there it's almost kind of thrown in your face. Have you always been politically interested and involved, or did something kind of spur you to be more than just, like, watching the news, but, like, I'm going to do something beyond watching TV? Yeah. So, um, both of my parents are union members. My dad was a firefighter, and my mom's a nurse. So, mm -hmm. so union politics has always been in my family. Um, and then in 2008, when I was a senior in high school, 
obviously we know that that was a big year for, for everyone. It was an open election. Um, and I served as one of the youngest precinct captains for then Senator Obama, did a lot of work on that campaign. Um, and that really opened my eyes to the idea that like everyday people can make a difference. Like, um, I knocked a ton of doors for that campaign and was able, and, and that's part of the whole effort from that campaign to get more people to show up and take part in this. So that was really, um, 2007, 2008 was the catalyst. And then I went to school for political science and history and I, I teach during the day, but I, I have always sort of understood that politics impacts people's lives and that it has a really big impact. And I think part of that's born out of being in Iowa where you you do have a big national say. Um, and that's a lot of what people think and talk about when they think of Iowa in terms of politics. But the other big thing that I've discovered as time has gone on is that, yes, the presidency is important. Yes, Congress is important. Um, but local politics is also really important as well. And and that's sometimes forgotten because we don't deal with maybe the, the biggest issues. We're not dealing with war and peace we're dealing with roads and sewers and things like that. But that's stuff that really impacts people's lives. So there's a long arc of learning that goes with being in Iowa and, and politics. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking about all the door knocking you've done, you probably have cracked your, all your knuckles and lost a lot of shoes doing it. Uh, you know, I'm in the in Pennsylvania. People are often surprised when someone comes to your door for any reason. But in my understanding, in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, and maybe some other places, people expect like they're not going to vote for caucus for anyone for president if they have a, someone hasn't knocked on their door. Is that kind of the experience there? Like, there's kind of an expectation that we're going to hear from people. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, there. People expect to be wooed in a mm -hmm. certain in a certain way. They expect to be invited to events, whether that's in a neighbor's living room or a big thing in your local high school gymnasium. But they definitely expect that personal touch of a neighbor coming to their door, talking about what candidate they prefer. Um, and that's true for, for both parties. Iowans, we are, we're incredibly lucky to, to still be the first in the nation. And we it kind of expect you to, to work for it. We're not just going to give you our vote because, because of who you are. And so was that, you, you said you learned a lot about all levels of politics doing that, that regular work. And I think it's a great learning experience for anybody. Um, what did, were you connected with local politics already at that time? Because I know that happens very often with like precinct captains, et cetera. I was, so I grew up on the, I grew up in Council Bluffs on the western side of the state. So I was involved in the local party. Um, when were you in Council Bluffs? Uh, from birth, 1990 to 2008. See, we were there at the same time, Jonathan. Oh my God. We could have gone to the casino. I was there watching <laughs> Lord of the Rings when it came out and Council Bluffs by myself working in my apartment <laughs> right by the casinos. I know those apartments. I've knocked those apartments, actually. Um, so, um, so, yeah. So, I was involved in the local party. I did get... I didn't get super involved in local politics till my wife and I settled in Waterloo. Mm -hmm. um, it, because in my day job as a teacher, one of the big things that I was hearing from recent graduates, um, students who were just completing college or whatever, is that I would ask them. I'd see them at Hy-Vee and be like, "Oh, are you are you going to come back and live in Waterloo?" 
And a lot of the times the answer was no. And it wasn't like, oh, Waterloo's boring. I'm a young, you know, 20-something and I want to experience the world. It was more of, I went to school for this or that or the other thing. And there just aren't the opportunities in Waterloo and Iowa that I want. They wanted to be back here and connected with their families and their friends and the system that they knew. But they were moving to St. Louis or Kansas City or Minneapolis or Omaha or Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so... That was the big thing that got me involved in local politics is that we we need to have young people move back here. We're, you know, we're all in a competition to attract young talent and economic growth, and that means we need to appeal to young people. And so um, I was having conversations with folks. We had a we had a, a nice city council, but it was it was folks who were either towards the end of their career or had had retired. Um, and that's certainly a perspective that is needed, but there, there were folks late twenties, early thirties, having the conversations about what we needed. One of the first things I ran on in 2019 was the city needs to do something about childcare because mm-hmm. it's incredibly expensive. Um, and I just had some folks say, well, I, I don't understand why that's a city issue. It, you know, it was, it was only this much in the seventies and eighties. And I said, I understand that, but it, it's not the seventies and the eighties anymore. It's the mid two thousands almost. And it's a lot more. Um, my wife and I have two kids. Uh, they're wonderful. Um, but we spend almost as much in daycare for the two of them. as just spent on the mortgage for a house. Yeah, we did too. And, and that, that's something that young people care about. They want to know. So, uh, one of the big things and something I'm very proud of is that we are going to be the first city in the state to roll out a property tax incentive program for new childcare facilities. So you will get three years of 100% property tax abatement up to $5,000 for creating a new childcare facility or expanding a new childcare facility. And that can be in-home or commercial um, as long as it's registered with the state. Um, we're going to help you get started. How did you get that done? Because like you said, um, people who are involved in politics, nothing against being older, like you and I said, and the country mm-hmm. getting, uh, they don't see that as a top priority maybe. Um, and the people you're surrounded with on council may be good people, but it's not necessarily always about whether you're a D or an R, just about what your priorities are. So how did you convince people that we need, this is something we can do and should do? Yeah, I, I will say Council members were very receptive to, to having those conversations, and that's and that's good. That's the one thing I like about council. When you look at these larger bodies, and obviously they're doing important work, but you know, there's 435 Congress members, there's 100 senators. That's a lot of people to talk to and get a majority. Our council is seven folks. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and have those conversations. I can sit down with the mayor um, and have those conversations. The the nice thing is that. Waterloo, um, people sometimes underestimate Waterloo. They don't think about us sometimes. And so there's definitely an appetite here in Waterloo to, to showcase the great things that we're doing. So having those conversations talking about, hey, this will attract young people. This, this will um, be part of the conversation. And it wasn't just me. I was connecting with childcare um, owners and parents and having them contact council as well because – it's one thing to have, you know, 
I decide it's important and tell you that it's important. It's a whole different thing to have a group of constituents come in and say, hey, we also think that this is important. Um, and we're, we are working at reimagining the city and making the city a 2030 vision that we've talked about and childcare plays a part in that. So it was really helpful to be able to have those conversations and build coalition partners to help um, have those conversations. And that's one of the reasons I talked to you, not necessarily about childcare, we'll talk about other things in a minute, but there's so many people online, we follow a lot of the same Democrats, progressive, whatever, um, who say, why don't Democrats do anything? And they do do a lot of things on the federal level that, yeah. that no one ever shares the good news, right? No. Um, but you can probably get more done more quickly on a local level, especially in a town that is smaller like mine, a Bridgeport or yours, Waterloo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I can meet with if I can I could right now call any city department head and say, hey, can we talk about this? And either they talk to me right then, or we'd find a time this week to do it. You know. I can call any of my council members and say, Hey, you know, what are you thinking? What are you hearing? Um, and we can have that conversation today. You know, it, it's less cumbersome than some of the other branches of government because there's fewer of us and we're so connected to the people. I've had two town halls, um, just this month and, Yes, it doesn't get as big a crowd as your congress member, but I have folks telling me about, you know, this challenge, this challenge, this opportunity, and those are really good things, and you just feel very connected at, at the local level. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you were talking about, though, is that the age of people in office, and uh, so people who are older may have the more time, more, uh, more of a resume, things where they feel like they're validated to run. And people who are younger, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Part of that psychological thinking, I am mm -hmm. like, if you asked me in 25 to become an executive somewhere, um, I would laugh at that idea. Um, and I probably would not have considered running for office. What, what was your experience being a younger person running and what, how would you encourage other young people that know not only are you valuable and qualified, but you should <clears throat> do this? So I'm going to plug an organization uh, run for something. Mm -hmm. They endorsed me in my in my first run, um, and having conversations with them, conversations with their mentors, because they only endorse candidates forty and under. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was really helpful because you're right. When we think of an elected official, we have a certain archetype that exists in our mind's eye, and it's and it's typically not a young person. And you're right; there are a lot of barriers. Uh, time, you know, when I first ran, we had our oldest child. So it was, uh, you know, both my wife and I had to work full time. So it was mm -hmm. a matter of juggling schedules so that I could be out knocking doors and having events. Um, it's money. Um, lots of folks told me when I was running, Oh, the candidate donates the first $2,500. And I was like, that's cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. where do you get that from? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it can be done. It mm -hmm. absolutely can be done because, um, as I was out knocking doors, um, I was having a lot of conversations with folks who are saying, it's nice to have a new perspective. It's nice that young people want to be involved. And I certainly think that the issues that we focus on 
changes when young people are part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a conversation I had with, with my campaign team was the, the average municipal voter in Iowa, based on the data we have, is 62. Um, and so, and so that set of voters has a certain set of issues that they want to talk about, understandably so. Um, we were able to expand the universe by targeting groups of people, um, by working with different coalitions, including young folks and young professionals, um, to help bring more people in and have the conversation that yes, cities do roads and sewers and these other things, but cities are also in charge of economic development and attracting business. They're in charge of tourism. They're in charge of helping childcare facilities expand. So it's, it's opening up what we perceive to be what government can do so that it can work for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think young people having that conversation and saying unequivocally that, yes, city governments can do this. Um, and that plays a part in attracting young people. Um, I, it can definitely be done, for sure. Yeah, Run for Something is absolutely my favorite <laughs> organization right now, for what you're saying, for recruiting, mentoring, helping people run for office under 40. Uh and again, I'm now 42, so I feel very old when I talk to a lot of people these days. Because um, there's like there's certain milestones in history, and I'm sure your parents are the same, my parents are the same, where you're like, oh, you don't understand this thing. And now there's things where I meet people who are in their 20s and don't understand things that happened in the 90s or 2000s, right? So, um, right. But when if we reimagine politics and we take the run for something model and drastically increase the, the number of people in local or federal office under the age of 40, what, what do you think that could do for our politics? I, th- I think it dramatically reimagines what we're capable of, what we think we're capable of and what we do. You know, when, when I talk to young folks, there is a lot of conversation about college affordability mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I graduated high school in 2008, really the message was you have to go to college. It was really a non-negotiable. That's mm-hmm. how you get a good job. And we all believed it. And, and I wanted to be a teacher and I knew that required college. But um, And I went to a very good school, um, but it's expensive, you know, and my, my wife went to school. We both have graduate degrees and that's a lot of you know, that's a lot of money that's taken out. Um, and so having young people, that changes the conversation. Talking about childcare, um, the number of folks that I've talked to who say childcare is very hard to get access to is staggering. Mm-hmm. And that's not, and that's not just a matter of like, oh, you know, I want to put my kids somewhere. This it's about women being able to work outside the home if they so choose it's about people being able to start small businesses. Um, it, it's one of those feeder issues that impacts everything downstream that we don't often think about because it's, it's always been there. But we've seen with the pandemic, it, it's not always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and that has an impact. Um, and climate change. Um, we know it's happening. The science is, is unequivocal. Um, unless, unless you're being paid for by someone who doesn't want to believe the science. Um, 
it's clear that the planet's climate is changing and it's being driven by humans. Now, it's a big challenge. It is the it is the biggest challenge that we have faced. But I don't believe in climate nihilism. The the idea that like it's just too big, there's nothing we can do, so we kind of have to sit back and and deal with it. There's a lot that can be done on local levels, on state levels, and certainly on federal and larger levels. But having young people who who care about that issue, who are going to live with it, I'm I'm 32. Um, Climate change isn't something that's going to happen in my grandchildren's time. It's something that's happening now. It's going to happen in my children's lifetime. Mm-hmm. And and we need to do something about that. So by having young people in office, we can push for those policies to address the big challenges of the day. Yeah, I and I know we talk about climate change and people often talk about things like Florida or, you know, island nations, or they talk about um, drying up rains in the southwest. But it has a tremendous impact on rural states like yes. Iowa, right? We, we saw the derecho a couple years ago. Uh, it was devastating, and uh, people can still help with the people affected by that. But what, what are the – first, before we get into what you're doing, right. what have you seen and you know that climate change is going to make an impact on a place like Iowa and Waterloo? Right. So, so from the climate models, we know that um, Iowa is going to get hotter mm-hmm. and it's going to get drier, which means that um, as the state that is most ubiquitously known for corn, it's going to be harder to grow that corn. Um, so, and that's a big part of our economy. Um, and so by being drier and hotter, it's going to impact our ability to feed the world. But in addition to that, there was just a report out by our state um, – climatologist that when we do have rain events they are going to be more sporadic and they are going to be more intense a lot of iowa's major cities whether it's the cities along the mississippi and the missouri whether it's des moines or cedar rapids or waterloo um, a lot of our cities are located along waterways Um, waterloo has been flooded uh, a couple times in the last decade as have most of iowa's major communities Um, having large, unpredictable rain patterns are going to impact our rural environments, in addition to impacting our rural environments with flooding that we saw in southwest Iowa um, not terribly long ago. So those are going to be an impact. We just saw the other day, it was very, very hot over the the last weekend, Um, part of the interstate, the road buckled Mm -hmm. in West Des Moines um, because... It, it's just not built to withstand that amount of heat for that amount of time period. Uh, that backed up traffic for several hours. And that's obviously that's a major economic thoroughfare as well as a way for people to get to and from home, uh, pick up their kids from daycare, those types of things. So, yes, obviously we care about the impacts on sea, um, places close to the ocean. Absolutely. But it's going to impact all of us uh, and, it, and it's going to look differently. Um, you know, since 2020, we've had two more potential derecho events, including one just a couple of weeks ago that started in South Dakota and impacted Northwest Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, before 2020, most of us didn't know what a derecho is. And now we're talking about more and more events like this. 
and that's driven by climate mm -hmm. and the changes that we're seeing. Yeah, we had last year Hurricane Ida came through our borough, um, mm -hmm. destroyed a neighborhood community that we celebrated with them this weekend. It was nice to see people rebuilding, but we had a, a fatality, someone drowned, right. and uh, you know it's not something that people had expected before. I talked about storms in the past, and this is and our engineer talks about um, how hundred year floods, as you know from city planning that you, you plan around hundred year floods. Now those are 25 or 50 year floods or, you know, more, yeah. much more frequent. Um, so you do a lot of contract work then with your borough, right? Like for infrastructure, yeah. for new businesses and planning. And I think people don't understand or don't think about the fact that local government can impact the, well, can affect the impacts of climate change just by city planning, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of our big things is developing, resilient infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so there are several um, major thoroughfares that we're looking at, at taking power lines and moving them from above ground poles that folks are used to and putting them below ground. So that mm -hmm. if there are events, strong weather events, those things are more protected. It's about utilizing our river and creating a place where people can gather. We have a beautiful amphitheater down by the river, but also creating infrastructure that can close that off as needed in case of, of weather events. It's it, And it does impact us because now we're, when we extend sewer and stormwater drainage to other places, we're having to buy larger pipelines. We're, have, we're having to, to think about, okay, how is this, you know, if, if 100-year floods are becoming 25-year floods, then what's happening to 5- and 1,000-year floods? And what does that mean for the amount of water we need to be able to move? Or what does it mean when we do a concrete bid for a street? And what type of product do we need so that it can last longer as compared to other things? And that that is something that we can do. Uh, and But it's also showcasing that climate change has a cost. Mm -hmm. Even if even if we don't live um, in a place that will be underwater or or we'll lose all access to water like we see in the southwest, yeah. um, it does impact um, my constituents because we have to plan for different things, uh, and those things can be a bit more expensive. Yeah, significantly more expensive. And it's my mom always used to talk about penny wise, pound foolish, but the opposite is true when you're doing things like infrastructure, planning yeah. around climate change. Uh, one other thing that we can do as local officials on climate change is really make the case to our state and federal um, leaders because they're the ones making more wide, uh, all-encompassing policy. Uh, but it's harder in Iowa now. The politics are much different than when I was there. Um, yeah. Is that something I, – I feel like it's so obvious, the impact on local communities. And you, you have people who maybe are turning a blind eye to it because – they're appeasing their base or something. Have you had an experience trying to like lobby or convince people like, Hey, can you do anything that's going to help us in the future? Because this is happening, whether you like it or not. It, it is a different conversation because you're right. Iowa moved from being fairly purple mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up to now being a more magenta state mm. um, on its, on its way to being a little bit redder. Um, and so, so 
it is having those conversations. I work with a group called Elected Officials Protecting America, which is a bipartisan climate change group. And we're asking local officials to sign on to a letter um, to the Biden administration to invoke a national climate emergency so we can use the Defense Production Act for a variety of things. And in my conversations, as with lots of conversations, it's it's moving away from the buzzwords of mm -hmm. climate change, those types of things I'm talking about. Resiliency is, is a big factor that folks, fo terminology that, that I have found kind of bridges that divide, mm -hmm. right? Because resiliency suggests a certain amount of toughness and forward thinking. So, so that's really how I approach these conversations of um, this is about ensuring that our communities are safe and resilient for whatever happens. Um, and enough, enough climate events have happened that folks, for the most part, get it. Um, when I was first on council, one of the first things I did was declare a citywide climate emergency. And we had folks um, from the right all the way to the left, and we got unanimous approval because everyone recognizes that, that it is an issue. And if we talk about it in the context of resiliency, as well as the context of cost, Mm -hmm. um, that that really makes it clear to folks when we can break it down at a local level like, hey, it used to cost this much to do it. Now it's going to cost this much if we don't make changes. Yeah. Um, as well as, as talking about the fact that there is hope. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to ding anyone who does work on climate science. I know that, that we are looking at some fairly stark and scary consequences mm -hmm. um, for our actions. But I think sometimes folks see the latest headline. They see folks saying that if we don't, if we don't do something within a certain amount of years, we're committing suicide as a species. And I get that folks are trying to convey the urgency of the moment. Right. But I, but I think that when people only see that headline or read that quick tweet, it it's somewhat disheartening. And so talking about how we can do things locally, state, and federal, um, and make a difference that can have an impact, that helps people better grapple with the, with the subject. And, you know, you talk about working on a local level, and it, sometimes it feels like uh, you're one drop in the ocean, which I think is yeah. a good metaphor. But now, as opposed to even 20 years ago, or a long time ago, you, um, you're in communication with other elected officials like me, uh, through the Run for Something Network, through yeah. other things, so uh, through the uh, Coalition on uh, Protecting America. So do you work with other people then on local officials and say, hey, here's what Waterloo's doing. Um, here's what you can do as an example and vice versa. Is there more of a teamwork aspect to even local government now? Yes, uh, and I think that's really important. Because um, when we think of, when we think of people... Politics can be lonely because you're yeah. kind of a one, one person, you represent whatever district or, or ward or whatever you have, and it can be lonely. And so finding those networks of like-minded folks is is helpful. So one of the things, I was approached by the Iowa Environmental Council to work on a plan to help transition the city to carbon-free energy by 2030. Um, I knew that Des Moines had done something similar. Uh, and so I was able to reach out to a couple of my colleagues in Des Moines. Um, we had several phone conversations and some Zooms to talk about, you know, what did that look like on a city level? How did that conversation go? 
Um, what coalition partners did you find helpful in that? Um, and that was really helpful. And so we became, uh, just last week, the fourth city in the nation to commit to uh, 24-7 totally renewable energy by 2035. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was in partnership with working with other elected officials, our um, energy supplier and others, so that we can make that commitment um, to focus on climate change. But um, it, it is really important to build those coalitions because none of us are none of us want to reinvent the wheel right with our mm -hmm. time is precious and there's a lot of challenges to to face so whether it's been climate change or child care or um talking about community violence that we've we've seen uh, on a national rise and also on a local level having those conversations with other elected officials is really really important because they sometimes see things from a different perspective um, and they can just give you an idea of what worked and what didn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have to say, as a, a councilman in another town across the country, uh, we'll look at a place like Waterloo or a place in another county next to us and say, "Well, if Waterloo's doing it, why can't Bridgeport do it?" Like it's we shouldn't we should be as good as them if they're mm -hmm. the same size as us. And I think a lot of places do that in a friendly, competitive way. Like we don't want to. Yes. We don't want Waterloo to be the leader and us to be the follower way down that line. No, and and we do we do it a lot. You know, we compare ourselves to the other top ten cities in Iowa on a mm -hmm. lot of things, and mm -hmm. and I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't also compare ourselves on passing policies that help our constituents. Yeah, definitely. Um, but hopefully, people are going to listen to this and find ways to compare what their councilman's doing or not doing, and then consider running for office. So, based on what your your experience has been, um, working on campaigns and volunteering, and then running and being in office yourself, why would you encourage people, despite all of the doomerism as you pointed out with climate and COVID and childcare and everything, why would you um, encourage people to make the decision to run for local office? Local office is a place where you can make an everyday difference for folks relatively easily. And, and what I mean by that is that because you are often working um, with a smaller group of folks, you're going to know them personally. Politics obviously plays a part, but you're also able to have those real face-to-face -face conversations with folks and, and be honest with them. Uh, and pour out your truths, and they can pour out their truths to you. And so local government is the closest to the people. It's the most receptive, I think, to folks, or at least it should be. And running for local office is a really good way to affect change, perhaps on a small level, depending on the size of your community, but that directly impacts people's everyday lives. Um, and doing so in a way that, that perhaps is quicker than what we see from our federal partners or even our state-level partners, depending on how often they meet. So local office, you're there, you're dealing with really important issues, and they have an, and they have an impact on people's everyday lives. Yeah. Well, I appreciate doing that, and I, I, no, I encourage everyone to follow Run for Something like we talked about. I think they, they are the organization that's going to help anyone the most and maybe it connects you to your local or state party, but I can't name every local and state party here anymore. Uh, but I can name you, Jonathan Greider. I appreciate you talking today. And if people want to follow you and learn more and maybe get in touch, where's the best way to follow you on social media? 
Um, so Grider for for W Lou on Twitter. So it's G R I E D E R for W L O O. Um, or Jonathan Grider Ward Two City Council Waterloo on Facebook. Um, or you can sign up for my newsletter at griderforwaterloo.com. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope if you're listening, you're inspired, and maybe you will run for office too.